Hi, I'm Sean Brown, and welcome to Inside the Strategy Room. Mergers and acquisitions, or M&A, is a hot topic in today's C-suites. The cost of money is low, and the competition for deals is high. Revenue synergies are a way for many companies to drive even further value from their deals. And it's also playing a larger role in the rationale for acquisitions. But while revenue synergies' importance may be growing, they are often quite elusive to capture. Earlier today, we hosted a video webcast on revenue synergies and had a chance to catch up with our presenters, Alex Liu, John Chartier, and Nico Raberger. The three of them, along with Rui Silva, recently wrote an article on the seven rules to crack the code on revenue synergies in M&A, available on McKinsey.com. The article tackles this issue and how leaders can think about capturing revenue synergies following a merger. Now I'd like to introduce our guests, all of whom are leaders in our M&A practice. Alex is a partner in our Minneapolis office, John is an associate partner in our Boston office, and Nico is a partner in our Vienna office. Gentlemen, welcome. Thanks so much for joining us today. Great to be here, Sean. Thanks for having us. Thanks so much, Sean. Really excited to be here. So first, let's set the stage. The article you recently wrote is based on pretty extensive ongoing research involving over 1,500 executives, a couple hundred deals, and multiple industries. Can you tell us a little bit more about the genesis of your work on this and, and why you did it? Absolutely. So we've undertaken a two-year research effort to really understand how do companies achieve revenue synergy. And what really motivated that is a couple of things. Firstly, we've been hearing a lot from clients on how much more important revenue synergies are becoming as part of their deal rationale. Yet, when we talk to a lot of these clients, they talk about how tough it is and how most of their programs have underachieved their delivery. I do a lot of uh, healthcare work. Um, and so for one medical device uh, company, we launched a cross-sell campaign with them. Um, and it was you know, much more challenging than we had originally thought. Uh, and you know, we started with you know, all the classic things that good M&A professionals do, which is you know, we estimated what the potential was. Uh, you know, we had plenty of experts you know, try and validate the, the sizing. But what was particularly challenging about it was the actual execution. It took us a fair amount of time to set up the incentives, the processes for the sales folks, uh, to establish credit between the two business units that were doing the cross-sell. Uh, it took us about six months to really get that all established. We surveyed about 1,500 experienced M&A executives. We benchmarked about 1,000 deals. And we did 50 deep, structured interviews with uh, leading M&A executives across large companies and, and small companies. And here are some of the things that we heard. Revenue synergies are really tough because they involve many different functions to get right. Cost is straightforward. Um, it takes a lot of commitment organizationally to get these things done. And laser focus and, and, and pre-closed preparation like clean rooms and, and data sharing. We heard that measurement and baselining revenue was particularly challenging. So this was another reason why we wanted to really get into 
the companies that really made this work and understand what their secret sauce was. Thanks, Alex. So what, what were some of the key findings in terms of the opportunity that this presents? Yeah, so we found that there are really seven key rules to really crack the code on revenue synergies. And I'll talk about a couple, the first few. Uh, so the first thing we found is that leading companies who do this well really understand what is the source of revenue synergies. They understand, firstly, where they're going to sell in terms of cross-sell or a new geography, what they're going to sell, whether that's you know a new solution or a new bundle or a new product, and how they sell, which is really about their Salesforce capabilities and marketing capabilities. Hey, Alex, let me build on that. This is Nico. Let's take the what-to-sell example, right? You have bundles and solutions as, as one of the first bubbles. It's, it's fairly straightforward to form a bundle. It still requires a lot of marketing to sell it. Whereas developing a new product, which is the small bubble far out, is very tough. Nevertheless, developing and co-creating a new product can be a huge source of revenue synergy. So this is about degree of difficulty and timing rather than potential. Let me give you a concrete example. I worked with a, with a player in, uh, in the technology space, and they, they, I think, did it, which I think is best practice. They really put out the whole canvas early on, and they tried to prioritize. And for them, you know, uh, a new product development and going via a new channel, those are both things that are very far out, were really the main rationale of the deal. So my, my view is you prioritize early, and then you execute on your priorities. The second thing that we found was that they made sure that for each of those revenue synergies, they were owned by a clear line executive and the frontline folks that were going to execute against them, right? So they established really clear owners as early as the due diligence process to validate them and ensure that they were on the same page. And then the third thing was they started to quantify a lot of these opportunities using customer-level insights. Many times, what we found in our research was that these, these initial estimates were done you know, in a team room with you know, nothing more than you know, kind of a finger in the air in terms of what they, the revenue synergy could be. We found that the best companies actually really dug deep, but our belief is that you have to actually test some of the core concepts on revenue synergies with customers and see and, and triangulate and see um, if they're really real. And many companies, I would say, think about more top-level assumptions like an increase in penetration or uh, an increase in market share, but they don't combine that top-down thinking with very clear bottom-up customer-level validation. Um, and, and I would say that principle carries throughout the diligence process, the pre-close process when you're analyzing things in a clean room format, and then into execution. Uh, so there's a couple ways you can do it in due diligence. So number one, and of course the, the most pure version of doing it is, is to have a clean team running who can see the customer data across both companies. That's of course the purest answer because you can get the most granular. Now, of course, that's not always possible. The important thing there is to at least do a model at the you know customer segment level, right? You might not be able to get to individual customer names, and, and actually, we've been very surprised. In, in many cases, you can you can 
identify, because if they're in the same industry, you can identify just roughly what are the top 10 or top 20 and get, you know, a very rough estimation. And, and usually those contribute most of the, the revenues. But it's at least to do at the segment level, you know, what are some of the core assumptions on product complementarity, on connections? Thank you both. Um, Nico, can you please take us through a few of the other roles? Well, John, I think the best, the best integrators really build their plan with the salesperson in mind. So this is not about a plan that's being developed in the boardroom. This is about being a plan that's developed in the boardroom, in the strategy department, in the commercial department, but then really brought to a level that the salesperson can execute. So thinking about tools, thinking about capabilities, thinking about collateral, compelling value proposition material that they will need to sell it. Another one is around making this worthwhile for your salespeople. Think about the incentives that you need to drive behavior change. This might entail learning about new products, understanding a new value proposition, you know, uh, traveling to new customers. So really think about are the incentives aligned with what we want to achieve. There's a sixth one around thinking about which processes you need to support that new behavior. Is it a new pricing tool? Do you need upgrades in your sales operation part? Or do you need additional technical service for a very technical cross-sell? So make sure that is in place if that is a, is a paramount value to your integration. Um, and finally, and this should be thought through from the end, think about your scorecard. How will you measure whether you've succeeded and start tracking against it and start signaling that to the organization early? A lot of people are not used to tracking or measuring cross-selling or revenue synergy initiatives, but if this is a big part of your deal rationale, you should be very serious about this, as serious as you are about cost synergy. You know, I've, I've worked with a B2B client who never actually followed up on revenue synergies in M&A. And when the first time we actually put up this dashboard and saying, we're going to look at this for the next two to three years, uh, that really showed them that the CEO was real about it and that the head of commercial was real about it. Thanks, Nico. It, John, it looks like you'd like to expand on this. Um, if I could add... A couple more pieces on this. Um, you know, the, the developing the leading and lagging indicators, it, it sounds straightforward, but there's some real kind of art in, in how you do that. So, and then and I would say, particularly on the leading indicators piece, the leading indicators it requires really thinking through What's the selling process, and are we tagging the right upfront behaviors? And let me just give you a couple of examples just to motivate that. Right in a in a B two C setting, right? Let's pretend that you know we are you know working on the M and A team for the Starwood Marriott merger. Right? I can imagine some of the leading indicators they're looking at are, you know, what is our conversion rate? if we're offering, you know, Marriott-type properties to legacy Starwood customers and vice versa, right? Like, let's say that, you know, our overall goal is to grow our share of wallet of, their, of that hospitality dollar. I would imagine they're looking at things like what's our conversion rate off of these particular offers. Similarly, in a B2B context, I would imagine you're looking at, you know, what's our conversion off of these kind of new product bundles or 
new cross sells. And, you know, is, is it generating, you know, an increase in kind of total share wallet for overlapping customers, right? Just to give you a little bit of a sense of, of you know, what, what some of these leading and lagging indicators are. Thanks, John. Nico, do you have any recommendations in terms of sequencing these seven rules and, and what you pursue when? Sean, this is not about, uh, you know, really knocking it out of the park on two out of seven. I think this is about keeping an eye to all seven aspects. You know, clients ask me, Nico, how do I delineate revenue synergies from base business? And we have very sophisticated approaches, whether you do that bottom up or you, you use an index and get the market out. So I'd say, unfortunately, this is tricky. You need all seven. And to the sequencing point, it's, it's loosely in order, right? So if you think about just stepping through the process, right, first figure out what they are, then get the right team behind it, then do the math on, you know, the customer level, then think about execution, then think about incentives, then think about the processes you need around to execute and then keep score. It's very loosely kind of in order. Got it. Thank you. Um, in your article, you also talk about the value that companies are leaving on the table by not actively pursuing revenue synergies up front. John, could you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, I think absolutely, Sean. This is something that is really critical as we think about what does the execution look like in terms of what initiatives individuals should go after in terms of integration planning, both on the cost synergy side that Nico talked about as well as the the revenue synergy side. For companies, it's really important that as they think about going into the deal, they're clear about what's our plan for protecting the base business, what's our plan for ensuring that we continue to execute on where we need to execute, while at the same time in parallel, focusing on where are the areas of opportunity. And those areas of opportunity very often include both initiatives that we can focus on now and initiatives that in the shorter term are things that we can start to execute on, as well as some of those longer-term horizons that we need to start thinking about now, but may actually take quite a bit longer to actually start to execute. So some examples of those might be, you know, expanding into new channels or into geographies where we don't currently have a presence or the establishing or launching of new types of products. Those types of things companies should start thinking about earlier on, understanding that the horizon for capture is a little bit farther down the road. Thank you, John. So of the deals that you reviewed, how many actually quantified revenue synergies up front and, and mention them explicitly. Alex? So just as context, we looked at six or seven different industries and we actually went through um, the announcement, synergy announcements of about 200 companies. And specifically what we were looking for was how often they mentioned revenue synergies, how often they mentioned cost synergies, and most importantly, how often did they actually quantify and put a number out there? And what we found is the following. So roughly half of the deals didn't even talk about revenue synergies in the announcement. It was purely sort of a cost focus. There was about a third of the deals that we looked at mentioned revenue synergies, but did not not put a number on it. And then the predominant minority, so about 10%, mentioned revenue synergies and put a real number on it. Interesting. So that's a pretty small number. So it seems like there's a lot of opportunity to continue to put a spotlight on this. You also talk about the slope of the curves of revenue and cost synergy capture. Can you talk a little bit about the differences between those two curves? So 
when you think about cost energies, best practice is generally looking at a two-year time frame and achieving, you know, roughly 100%. Sometimes that can be a three-year time frame. And in the first year, shooting for 70% uh, attainment of, of the overall public, public goal. Um, revenue synergies, you need to take a, a longer time horizon, usually in the three to five year time frame. And, and I would say also setting that kind of overall objective very thoughtfully. And the scope is a bit more gradual. Um, in our research, um, we, you know, on average, companies would achieve revenue synergies about 30% in the first year, 60% of your total in the second year, 80% in, in, in the third year, and then on up. And so it's a much gradual, much more gradual uh, uptake uh, of synergies. And the reason for that is revenue synergies are multifunction, multi-lever. Cost synergies tend to be single function, single lever, right? So which, and what I mean by that is revenue synergies require orchestration of many different parties within an organization uh, to get to get right, whereas cost synergies, it's a single action, right? It's a renegotiation of a procurement contract, right, to get to get the value. That makes sense. So you need to coordinate a lot more to make the revenue synergies happen versus cost synergies. What about forecasting? It seems like cost synergies would also be easier to forecast than revenue synergies. But when one is trying to figure out what the revenue synergies op- opportunities are, what's the timing for when those are typically knowable? Nico? Sean, I would, I would advise to start and have the rough strokes of this in the due diligence phase. In the end, you might be bidding for an asset, and hopefully you don't have to give away those revenue synergies and the purchase price, but you should have a clear perspective walking in. After signing, a lot of people either work on this bilaterally or set up a clean team to really accelerate to push thinking on sources of revenue synergies. So I would definitely work on that. Uh, if revenue synergies are a big lever. And then definitely coming to close, right, that's when you need to mobilize your your teams and make sure that everybody starts pushing the very latest. So I would start early, refine, 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 so that you come out at close with a very clear perspective, and then you can start onboarding and mobilizing your commercials team. Great. So who's the typical owner of that mobilization of, of revenue synergy, identification, and capture? And what's the typical C-suite involvement in terms of just getting the organization excited about capturing these post-merger? Alex? So um, early on, the M&A team um, usually has the, the pen on the deal model. So they're identifying the, I would say, call them the levers. It's very important that whatever estimate is developed is owned by um, a BU president who typically will be the receiving entity of the acquisition, as well as that sales leader. And, and I would say even further, not just the sales leader, but you know, the, the regional leads and then you know, maybe a layer down so that they, the, due, the due diligence estimate becomes actually just, these are the, target, these are the targets and the sales targets we're gonna go after um, in the year. Uh, and, and usually, right, best practice is it will go to board approval and the president will actually present the financial case. And they'll talk about, okay, I've signed off on this revenue, 
this revenue synergy goal and the trajectory of it, and I validate it with my own team, and I'm comfortable with that being part of my ongoing operating plan, right? That is, that is best practice, right? The CEO, it depends on a little bit the size of the deal. I mean, the CEO, the CFO, they're also involved, but it's that accountable line executive that really has to kind of stick the neck out and, and be involved and at a pretty granular, pretty granular level. Awesome. Uh, Alex, Nico, John, many thanks for taking the time with us today. And thank you to our listeners for joining us inside the strategy room. We hope you enjoyed today's session. And if you'd like to read more about this topic, you can find Alex, John, and Nico's article, Seven Rules to Crack the Code on Revenue Synergies and M&A on McKinsey.com. If you'd like to receive updates featuring our latest insights on M&A and other topics, you can also sign up for email updates on McKinsey.com's website, including at the bottom of the article. We also encourage you to follow us on Twitter at MCK Strategy and to connect with us on LinkedIn via the McKinsey Strategy and Corporate Finance Practice page. Thanks again for listening. We look forward to having you join us again soon inside the Strategy Room.